Are you ready for the end of the world? <laughs> you are listening to Your Community Spirit, the show about caring, sharing, and preparing for the changes needed in the world as we know it. Let's bring back the circle again, the circle of friends, the circle of family, the circle of being. Wake up and be healthy and therefore wealthy to the peace and joy of Mother Earth. This is Ord Energy Mon. And this is Tree Song. And we are live local. Local, locals. Talk talk radio. (laughs) I don't know if you've been noticing, but it's been hot. I've been noticing because I've been working outside. It's getting hot in here. But nothing compares to an epic Middle East heat wave could be global warming's hellish curtain raiser. Record-shattering temperatures this summer have scorched countries from Morocco to Saudi Arabia and beyond, as climate experts warn that the severe weather could be a harbinger of worse to come. In coming decades, UN officials and climate scientists predict that the region's mushrooming populations will face extreme water scarcity, temperatures almost too hot for human survival, and other consequences of global warming. If that happens, what do you mean if? When that happens. <laughs> I mean, it's already happening. Here it says, conflicts and refugee crises far greater than those underway are probable, said Adele, a senior advisor at the UN Development Program's Regional Bureau for Arab States who has worked on studies about the effect of climate change on the region. Quote, this incredible weather shows that climate change is already taking a toll now, that it is by far one of the biggest challenges we've ever faced by this region, he said. These countries have grappled with a remarkably warm, I think warm is an understatement, summers in the recent years, but this year has been particularly brutal. Parts of the United Arab Emirates and Iran experienced the heat index that's, I don't think I have to explain what the heat index is. We know. For Southern, Southern Illinois. Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> it's a measurement that factors in humidity as well as temperature that soared to 140 degrees Fahrenheit in July. And Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, r- recorded an all-time high temperature of nearly 126. Yeah, and that one's the actual temperature. You know, heat index is getting higher than that, but the actual temperature is getting up to the 120s. I mean, we were making a big deal uh, where we had a heat index of 109 a couple Saturdays ago when we were installing the solar here. But southern Morocco's relatively cooler climate suddenly sizzled last month with temperatures surging to highs between 109 and 116 degrees. In May, record-breaking temperatures in Israel led to a surge in heat-related illnesses. Temperatures in Kuwait and Iraq startled observers. On July 22nd, the mercury climbed to 129 degrees in the southern Iraqi city of Basra. A day earlier, it reached 129.2 in Kuwait. I bet Kuwait was like, take that, Iraq, we're 0.2 degrees higher than you. We're number one. (laughs) If confirmed by the World Meteorological Organization, the two temperatures could be the hottest ever recorded in the Eastern Hemisphere. The immediate cause of all this misery 
is stubborn people. No, <laughs> stubborn high pressure system. But a fundamental shift in the country's weather patterns appears to be taking place. In Baghdad, the number of days with temperatures at 118 degrees or higher has more than doubled in recent years. Quote, if you look back 40 years ago, you'd have these temperatures for, you know, four or five days. But then the wind would kick up dust and that would cool the surface. That's not happening now. Clients, climate scientists say this shouldn't be surprising. A study published by the journal Nature Climate Change in October predicted that heat waves in part of the Persian Gulf could threaten human survival toward the end of the century. Researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry and the Cypress Institute in Nicosia recently predicted a similar grim fate for the Middle East and North Africa, a vast area currently home to about half a billion, half a billion people. Yeah, I think that a, an area that has half a billion people in it, that becoming impossible to live in in the summer, that's a pretty big deal, pretty big news. I mean, we just had like two days that were, you know, 110, and th that was bad. Yeah. I mean, we've had some pretty hot days. I mean, we've been hovering right around a heat index of 100 for yeah. a few weeks. Imagine a heat index of 129. Yeah. I don't, excuse me, I am not going to try to imagine that. I think my brain will fry. Yeah, well, one of these stories on this pointed out, too, that when the actual temperature gets up as high as 110 or 120, then just metal surfaces start becoming impossible to touch. You know, they just become searing hot. I kind of, yeah, I mean. I'm sure you know that up on the roof. Yeah, we, we, we actually get a piece of carpet and cover our tools and, you know, try not to have any of the metal be out in the sun before you know the solar modules you don't want them sitting out in the sun before you go to put them up on the roof yeah they get hot so, so let's see in other news a murdoch owned tv channel will air a landmark climate series right before the election <laughs> is it landmark in that it doesn't talk about climate change mm -hmm. or well that's that was the fear initially of what this but uh it's the the years of living dangerously series National Geographic Channel will premiere season two of the critically acclaimed TV series Years of Living Dangerously. It's, it's not coming until October 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern. But it's, I've seen the first uh, season of this. It's pretty amazing what they cover. Uh, Wait a second. They cover a list of famous people. Yeah, part of it's this whole, it's kind of a gimmick, but what they do is they take famous people and they do like high production values they make it into like a sort of if it were a, a drama like a a drama it started out on showtime but now it's on national geographic it's a very dramatic like they have music playing and they do these interviews and it's very professionally produced but the story they're telling isn't the story of some fictional character it's the story of climate change in the world well i mean i think probably the landmark part of this is the fact that Murdoch owns 73%. Yeah. And they're known for climate disinformation. Yeah, they're known for climate disinformation. So are they sneaking disinformation into it, or is it just straight up, like... I mean, it is a documentary series, but you just also said it's a drama. 
Yeah. So is it a documentary or is it a drama? Because dramas, you know, tend to throw in like misinformation. Yeah. Well, they do have information here from the science advisor of it. And there are a lot of concerns about this with the science when it was found out that Murdoch and Fox would be involved. Um, it, the science advisor is uh, saying that, uh, let's see, here's a quote. Having already seen the footage from the early episodes of season two in his role as chief science advisor, he can personally attest that the sci- season's science-driven episodes are every bit as blunt as the climate crisis as season one was. So switching it over to this new channel has not heard it. And also, apparently, the the particular Murdoch who owns the National Geographic part of the empire is interested in sustainability. Like, it's his son, I think, who owns this. Uh, let's see if it says in the article here. His son now owns this branch of the Murdoch media empire. So supposedly, that's why they're doing things like Years of Living Dangerously, is because maybe he's atoning for his father's <laughs> disinformation, uh, he, they are trying to put a very science-driven show together. And I am I am really looking forward to that because season one was very science-driven. I was impressed by how they, they... I felt they pulled it off. They combined a lot of review of the science with having the celebrities get on there and get people interested. Was it entertaining? Oh, yeah, it was That's, entertaining. I don't care about the science. <laughs> was it entertaining? Yeah, it was, like, it was like an action movie where the action that's happening is climate change. Ooh, yeah, I might want to watch that because you know, especially when you get someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's on again in this season. I'm gonna take it on. <laughs> yeah, he goes out there with the firefighters and talks about how fires are ravaging the the West because of climate change, and it it creates suspense, it creates drama, it tells personal stories, and combines that with the uh, the, the bigger picture. If they can even do as good as season one, then it will be worth it. But th- the science advisor says that he feels like they may have done uh, even more material on the necessary solutions than they did last time. Because season one, that is one potential flaw in it. It mostly focuses on what's happening, you know, the climate crisis. It's happening. So basically you watch it and at the end of it you're just depressed. Yeah, I mean, you're depressed and then like, it says... The whole world's <laughs> falling apart. Yeah. Oh, and my it, goodness. And it says, here's a link. Go try to cheer yourself up with this link. You Does know? it really? <laughs> yeah. But then it sounds like in season two, they focus more on solutions than they did in season one. So we will stay tuned. We will give more news about that as it happens. It's October 30th is the first episode. And they, they mention in their press release that they are releasing it now right before the election. So it's kind of like they want people thinking about climates when they go vote. <laughs> um, right before the election, as in October 30th, so they're going to watch like an episode. An episode, maybe two. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> so they're just saying the hype going up to it will cause people to talk different. Yeah. So why don't they release it you know, a, a couple months before so people can watch it? <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah, uh-huh. Maybe they don't have faith in people's attention spans. They think that by episode three or four, people will forget. <laughs> just like... <laughs> So basically, people can watch an episode before the election. Yeah, so. get really hyped by the first episode. And <laughs> um, this next story, I don't know. Did you see what the name of the place is? What Calm County? Hmm. Here's the latest community to crack down on fossil fuel shipments. What Calm County, Washington, a mostly rural area in the upper northwest corner of the country has become the latest community to crack down on fossil fuel shipments. On Tuesday, the city council unanimously voted to impose a 60-day moratorium on permit approvals for new projects that would export 
crude oil or other unrefined fossil fuels. The Council noted the public safety risk posed by increased fossil fuel shipments. Now, if you read that paragraph, they're doing a moratorium on permit approvals for new projects. Yeah. Old projects may still be existing. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, who cares? Anyway, it's a step. Yeah. WhatCom was the site of a battle earlier this year between a developer that wanted to build a coal export terminal and the Lumi Nation, which argued that the terminal would infringe on its tribal fishing rights. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers sided with the Lumi in May and denied a permit for the project, which was would have processed up to 54 million metric tons of exports to Asia each year, most of it coal. The county isn't alone in fighting against fossil fuel shipments. The cities of Spokane, 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 I don't know where I got that. The cities of Spokane, Washington, and Vancouver, well, it says in Vancouver in Washington. Is there a Vancouver, Washington also? I guess so. And Oakland, California have also taken or are considering steps to limit the movement of dirty fuels within their borders, citing risks to both residents and the environment. And I like how they're starting to, you know, point out that these issues affect people. Yeah. Because, you know, historically we've always talked about saving the environment and people are selfish. And so we need to point out that saving the environment saves ourselves because we're kind of part of it. Yeah. If, if you get this pollution in your community or if an oil train blows up in your community, that's going to be a negative impact on you and your neighbors. What? And- Really? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, also, too, the climate impacts, they, they they always come around to, they affect everybody. You may think you live in an area where, oh, it's not going to be as much climate impact as somewhere else. But if there, you know, if there are riots and wars in another part of the world because of the climate, then food prices are going to go up, fuel prices are going to go up. So. And we'll get Syrian refugees. Yeah, exactly. I mean, climate refugees from all over the world, traveling all over the world. Yeah. And this, these terminals do have a big impact because if the goal is to reduce the amount of fossil fuels that we burn uh, in order to prevent a climate catastrophe, then slowing down the flow of it is always going to help facilitate that goal. Because you know, if, bu- if, if they're exporting it more rapidly, then they're burning it more rapidly, and it will stay in the ground longer without these new export terminals. So here's a completely different energy news. Energy news in the entire opposite direction. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. So I don't know where that came from. <laughs> yeah. Well, from this story. First American offshore wind turbines are installed. What? I this guess, is our first offshore wind turbines? I guess so. I was, that was the most shocking part of this story to me. It took us this long to get around to it. Uh, American offshore wind power is one step closer to becoming a reality with the installation of the first turbines at Deepwater Wind's Block Island project now complete. So they have completed this project at Deepwater Wind's Block Island. Construction on the country's first offshore wind farm began last spring off the coast of Rhode Island. The project is expected to be fully operational later this fall with an installed capacity of 30 megawatts. That's kind of a lot. I mean... 
considering it's only five turbines. Yeah, it's these really big turbines, and it's 30 megawatts just from five of them. And the five-turbine deep water wind wind farm will generate enough electricity to supply all of Block Island's needs while also sending some to mainland Rhode Island. This will be a clean, affordable, and welcome development for Block Island's residents who have long had to rely on imported, expensive, and polluting diesel fuel for energy. Yeah, I mean, they just had a giant diesel generator, right? Yeah. I mean, probably. That's how most islands do. Yeah. And so now they they decided to put, you know, put this project in, and they're going to be in the opposite direction. They just get all the energy they want from the wind. Here's a quote. Today's turbine installation shows that offshore wind power is a real viable option for states along the coast to transition to clean energy, said Miles Grant, a National Wildlife Federation spokesman. Now, this this progress is happening at a time when support for growing wind power has never been higher. Actually, 91% of likely voters want to expand wind energy, according to a recent Hmm. poll. It's hard to get 91% of voters to agree on anything. You could say (laughs) the sky is blue and the people, you know, in a rainy area will say, no, it's gray. And this support is truly bipartisan, with 82% of self-described conservatives say they think transitioning to a clean energy economy is important. Yes. Well, that's, they've, I think... They've finally realized some of the economics of it, that, you know, you install clean energy technology and over the life of the system, you save money. Well, I mean, there's no fuel. I mean, you don't have to. It's a one-time expense. I mean, there is maintenance and stuff like you have with a normal power plant, but you don't have to continually buy fuel. Yeah. So who had ever thought wind was a fuel? Wait, (laughs) didn't the Dutch figure that out? Like, you know... Yeah. Five centuries ago? <laughs> yeah, many centuries ago. It's <laughs> just like, so many centuries, I don't even know exactly off the top of my head. But didn't yeah. they have some offshore wind turbines? You know, <laughs> they, They've had windmills for a very long time. <laughs> <Just like. laughs> the rest of the world is now catching up. They've been good at um, resisting the sea level rise, too, because on their coast, they have had uh, dikes and dams for hundreds of years. So now all of these countries around the world are learning how to do sea level control from... Uh, the Dutch to some extent. Right. Because they know they've got experience with it. Yeah, because, I mean, this, the sea's going up and people have to be able to continue to live where they want to live, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So. Some holidays. Today is Middle Child's Day. We finally get a day for middle children. I'm a middle child. <laughs> we get overlooked the other 364 days of the year. <laughs> Left-handers Day. And National Creamsicle. Yeah. Do you think they misspelled creamsicle? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like the word sick is in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on how much of it you eat. <laughs> so relaxation day is coming up too. Uh, can't we celebrate that every day? Relaxation but, day every but day. But it's on a Monday. It's on a Monday. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Tuesday is National Tell the Joke Day. I would never tell a joke. All right, so Wednesday is National Thrift Shop Day. And Thursday is Bad Poetry Day. You'll never do a bad poetry. (laughs) Well, that's that's a matter of interpretation. I might all of my poems might be bad poetry. A reminder, August is admit your happy month and peach month. So 
Yeah, got a couple of peaches at home that I still have to eat. What? <laughs> I didn't eat them yet. Well, that's because we had a lot of them, so it takes time to eat them all. Have you tried the donut peaches? No, I haven't. I've heard of those. I've never had them before, but, I mean, before this year. They, I mean, they basically are shaped like a donut, and they have a very, very small pit in the center, mm-hmm. and they're very, very tasty. Yeah. They don't taste like a donut. They, they taste like a peach. They look like a donut. Mm-hmm. They taste like a phenomenal peach. Yeah. So don't bite into it and expecting the grossness of a donut. <laughs> As in, it tastes better than a donut. <laughs> yeah. We can keep an eye out for those at the farmer markets. So back to school bash. Wait. School? <laughs> school. Oh, no. School is coming. That's like from Game of Thrones when they say winter is coming. School is coming. <laughs> the back to school bash is coming up on Saturday at 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Irma C. Hayes Center. This weekend is the third annual Back to School Bash, hosted by the Women's Center at the Irma C. Hayes Center in Carbondale. At this event, backpacks and school supplies are provided to over 500 children from throughout southern Illinois. In addition to free school supplies, the Back to School Bash will also include free food, haircuts, dental exams, employment opportunities, and kid-friendly activities. Employment opportunities for the kids? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like, I'm just yeah. Donations for this event can be dropped off at the Women's Center at 610 South Thompson Street in Carbondale or the African American Museum in the University Mall. Additionally, monetary donations for cool school supplies can be made at thewomensctr.org. And so... That sounds like a good way to start the new semester. Yeah, actually, last Friday... The Arnett's barbershop right across the street did a back to school bash like this. They did free free haircuts, food. Um, they had a sorority, um, not a sorority, a fraternity come and show the kids how to do some um, good dances. And they had live music by a WDBX DJ. So um, they used to do it years ago, and so they, you know, originally it was just free haircuts. But people in the community started coming out, and you know, before you know it, it was a party. So yeah. <laughs> I know um, they are planning to do that again next year because, well, it was fun. I mean, the barbers were cutting hair for a long time; they looked kind of tired, <laughs> but at the same time, they were having a lot of fun because the energy was high. Yeah, that sounds so, like a good deal. Um, continuing the conversation, every Tuesday at seven p.m. at the Newman Center, each week. A group of community members meets on Tuesday night for continuing the conversation. The purpose is to build an interracial community based on listening respectfully to each other's life stories. As we listen to one another, we will be building a community that strengthens our understanding and compassion for one another. Again, that's Tuesdays, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Newman Center on South Washington Street. For more information, there is a Facebook page, Race Unity Group of Carbondale. All right, also coming up next Tuesday, this is on the first and third Tuesdays, Transportic Playground. It's Tuesday, August 16th at 8 p.m. Since September 2009, the freshest spoken word open mic in southern Illinois has turned Carbondale into the city of poets. Well, since it's bad poetry next Thursday, maybe the theme should be bad poetry. <laughs> yeah, you can bring your bad poetry, and 
You can you can read your poem and then not tell us if it's the bad poetry or the good poetry. <laughs> See if we can figure it out. So this is happening over at Guy House, 913 South Illinois Avenue at 8 o'clock on Tuesday. On Wednesday from 3 to 6 p.m., it's the Downtown Community Farmer's Market. That's downtown Carbondale on the 200 block of Washington Street. When I say the 200 block, I mean in the street. It is a street party. They close the street. The city does. And farmers set up, and there's food, and there's music. The the farmer's market has been prepared all summer for the WDBX Street Fest. So they've been practicing. (laughs) They've got practice at this. There will be dancing in the streets. I don't know why, but that always makes me happy to, like, you know, dance in the street. Yeah. I think it's because, you know, usually you're not allowed to. The cars are driving by. And What are you talking about? I just go out there and dance, and then yeah. cars go around me because they're like, what kind of crazy person's dancing in the street? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's a fun time. So also coming up, we have the New Humanist Forum on Environmental Sustainability. It's coming up not this Sunday, but next Sunday, August 21st at 12.15 p.m. at the Carbondale Unitarian Fellowship. This month's topic is environmental sustainability. Panel members will describe their current local and international work, future goals, and welcome forum member participation in the discussions. Panel members include J. Elizabeth Donahue, an educator, activist, and creator host of the WDBX radio show, Greenhouse Rebellion. You may listen to that here right on WDBX. So that's been discussing environmental issues for over 10 years. There's a whole list of great, this sounds like a really great and interesting discussion here. Got different panel members, and yeah. So mark your calendar for that. That's on Sunday, August 21st. Yeah, the nice two DJs here. Uh, the speaker from SAFE also does DJ here as well. Psych. Um, also mark your calendar for Free Cycle. That will be at the end of the month where unwanted stuff finds a new home. So set aside your stuff, and you can bring it over to Gaia House, and we'll, of course, talk more about it as we get closer to the end of the month. Another couple events we want you to mark your calendar for is the WDBX Summer Street Fest, which is August 27th, right out here on Washington Street. And also mark your... Mark your, I was going to say mark your plate. (laughs) Mark your calendar for the second annual Rock the Plate, brought to you by Foodworks. It is music, but more important than music for me, food from a whole list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. At least on this list, local chefs using local food. That is Sunday the 28th, and you would want to uh, get tickets because um, last year it sold out, and I had to hustle, mm-hmm. pull strings, so I could go eat a lot of good local food from a lot of good local. So FoodWorks is FWS, well, FWSoil.org. So food, FoodWorks Southern of Southern Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> FWSoil. <laughs> FWSoil.org. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that as we get closer. But it's so exciting. I we need to buy my ticket today, mm-hmm. yes, because I missed it last year. Yeah. Well, see, it's very nice of you to mention it now because you haven't got your ticket yet. Everyone might rush it. <laughs> <laughs> and there is also the Illinois Renewable Energy Fair at IllinoisRenew.org. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff happening in this month. S- start setting aside some time to have fun. 
Yep. Enjoy the month while it lasts. And enjoy enjoy the time before the semester while it lasts, too, because school is coming. <laughs> you have been listening to Your Community Spirit. Treesong po- puts the podcast up on yourcommunityspirit.org if for some reason you would like to listen to us again. Yes, and we are 100% up to date on the podcast. So, Email us, info at yourcommunityspirit.org. We will see you again on the radio next week.